0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome to another installment of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us again. Follow us at danproftshow.com. Social media, at Dan Prof Show on Twitter, Facebook, also at Dan Prof on Twitter, if you are so inclined for my musings and postings throughout the week. Uh, I want to start with um, updating the uh, Chuck Schumer story that we discussed yesterday at some length. You know, Chucky Corleone from Brooklyn making explicit threats in the direction of Neil Gorsuch And Brett Kavanaugh, of course, you remember what he said on Wednesday.
3: And they're taking away fundamental rights. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions.
2: So naming them uh, release a whirlwind, pay the price. Uh, no, won't know what hits you. Now, we're supposed to just interpret that, of course, as Chuck, per his spin, Chuck Schumer was merely suggesting that uh, Senate Republicans and perhaps the president may suffer electorally if the Supreme Court upholds the Louisiana heartbeat law in uh, contravention to the wishes of pro-abort types like himself. You yeah. know, Mitch McConnell took to the well of the Senate yesterday to uh, address not just Schumer's rant at that uh, pro-abort rally, but his doubling and tripling down on said rant.
4: I fully anticipate our colleague would quickly withdraw his comments and apologize. That's what even reliably liberal legal experts like Lawrence Tribe and Neil Coyle have publicly urged. Instead, our colleague doubled down. double down. He tried to gaslight the entire country and stated that he was actually threatening fellow senators as though that would be much better, but that's the fiction. And then a few hours later, the democratic leader tripled down instead of taking chief justice, Robert's sober and appropriate statement to heart, he lashed out yet again and tried to imply the chief justice was biased, biased for doing his job and defending the court.
2: And uh, Chuck Schumer uh, offered this by way of apology. Now, I should not have used the words I used
3: yesterday. They didn't come out the way I intended to. My point was that there would be political consequences, political consequences, for President Trump and Senate Republicans if the Supreme Court, with the newly confirmed justices, stripped away a woman's right to choose. Of course I didn't intend to to suggest anything other than political and public opinion consequences for the Supreme Court, and it is a gross distortion to imply otherwise. I'm from Brooklyn. Sure. We speak in strong language. I shouldn't have used the words I did, but in no way was I making a threat.
2: Chucky Corleone from Brooklyn.
3: Now, I should not have used the words I used yesterday. They didn't come out the way I intended to. I'm sorry,
5: but I'm just yeah. uh, I'm just wrong wrong I just
2: think the way I to When in Rome, sure. I'll take you at your promise, Chuck. Yeah, take you at your promise. Uh, Kim Strassel in the Wall Street Journal has a good write up on this uh, Schumer and the War on Judges. This is not a one off. This is not an anomalous event. The Chuck Schumer attack on Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. When we played clips yesterday from the socialist Spice Girls, Iana Presley, for example, the two alleged sexual predators on the court. Uh, that would include Clarence Thomas, of course, in addition to Kavanaugh. There's no basis to make those assertions. There's no evidence. In fact, the evidence tends to exonerate, which is why both are on the court. But uh, that's not relevant because. The Democrat approach to the court is this, in Kim Strassel's words. Three words, simple, attack and intimidate, attack and intimidate. Strassel goes on, of everything Democrats lost to Trump in 16, the forfeiture of the judicial branch still grates the most. They remain furious that Obama nominee Merrick Garland never got his Supreme Court robe. They'll live at the Kavanaugh confirmation, provide the high court its first solid conservative majority in decades, They're outraged that Senate Majority Leader McConnell has confirmed nearly 200 Trump judges, including 51 on the appellate courts. Yeah, that's what's really happening here. Because remember, what has the Democrat playbook been over the last half century? When they had the opportunity, get through the courts what we cannot get through the other two branches of government. And now that is being forestalled or worse. And that's why this is not isolated. Uh, Strassel reminds us of recent examples that uh, support her thesis. Elizabeth Warren sucker punching John Roberts during the impeachment proceeding, the Trump impeachment trial, in which she forced him to read aloud her question, challenging his legitimacy to preside over the court. You know, he's hopelessly biased. Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, uh, her recent opinion that suggested her fellow conservative justices were Biased in favor of Mr. Trump, no problem there, but to, when Trump suggests that Sotomayor and, and Ginsburg are biased against him, should recuse themselves, then he's threatening the independent judiciary and the future of our representative republic. I'm not saying what Trump said is was right or judicious, but I'm talking about the standard of analysis here. Also this from Strassel, reminding us again some institutional knowledge, which is why she's one of the best. Rhode Island, Sheldon Whitehouse, senator from Rhode Island, four other senators, including my home state senator, Dick Durbin, filed an amicus brief last year warning of the political consequences to the court if justices didn't side with those leftist senators against gun rights in a case before the court. The uh, brief from those Dem senators, the Supreme Court is not well. Perhaps the court can heal itself before the public demands it be restructured in order to reduce the influence of politics. Right. If you don't do what we want politically, we're going to pack the court to reduce the influence of politics. You follow that logic? You're not supposed to. That's leftist projection. But what Schumer did is just the latest and most naked iteration of what the left has been doing, certainly under Trump and uh, off and on for, as I said, the last five decades. This is nothing new. And who is it they serve? I'll tell you who they serve. They serve the hysterical elite, like actress Busy Phillips. If you don't know who she is, um, don't feel bad. You probably shouldn't. She was in that show um, Cougar Town with Courtney Cox, and she's got some, I think, some sort of uh, half-baked talk show on the E! Network or something. This was Busy Phillips at one of those pro-abort rallies, like the one Chuck Schumer spoke at on uh, the uh, Louisiana heartbeat bill. And of course, what this is really about, celebrating your abortion, abortion as a sacrament to the left, this is their the sacrament of their Marxist religion. Listen to this, it, it is remarkable. Somebody has to make Ashley Judd sound sane and busy Phillips is equal to the challenge.
6: Here I was sitting in Los Angeles in my beautiful office of my own late night talk show. Soon, I would be driving my hybrid car to my beautiful f***ing home <laughs> to kiss my two beautiful and healthy children and my husband who had taken the year off to parent so I could focus on my career.
2: Why are you screaming at us? And
6: I have all of this, all of it, because... Because, because I was allowed bodily autonomy at 15, I will not be shamed into being quiet. We will not be shamed into being quiet never again. Stop talking about my abortion or my periods or my experiences in childbirth, my episiotomies, my yeast infections, or my ovulation that lines up with the moon.
2: Anybody want to go out to a couple's dinner with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Busy Phillips? <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, it's it's something, and um, that's an opportunity for uh, a bit of education, too. It's a remarkable, uh, sad, but also instructive how much unresolved pain Busy Phillips carries with her over the decision to abort her child. The pro-life movement is a hospital to heal women who have been hurt by abortion, and that's what the Louisiana law intends to do. And the Busy Phillips actually uh, was accidentally testimony for that perspective, not the perspective for which she thinks he, she's an advocate. This
5: is Dan the Grab a
0: good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. Well, the discussion of uh, Chucky e. Corleone from Brooklyn and the radical pro board left uh, is a perfect way to segue into a discussion of whether or not uh, it should be Bernie or Biden representing Chucky e. Corleone and all those that were out protesting the Supreme Court over the uh, Louisiana heartbeat law that's pending before the court, that case that's pending before the court, uh, as well as uh, just the consolidation of Uh, Democrats behind Biden, it would appear a significant advantage he now holds after Super Tuesday, as we've discussed all week. It's not over, but uh, uh, the stars are increasingly aligned for Joe Biden. And so President Trump yesterday at a Fox News town hall hosted by our friend Brett Baer and Martha McCallum was asked, uh, who's your preference now that it's down to Bernie And Biden. So, you want to face Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders? That's my question.
3: I'll tell you, I was all set for Bernie because I thought it was going to happen. You know, we get ready for things, right? So, mentally, I'm all set for Bernie. Communist, I had everything down. He's (laughs) a
5: communist.
3: I was all set. And then we have this crazy thing that happened, right, on Tuesday, which he thought was Thursday. (laughs) But he also said, 150 million people were killed with guns, and he was running for the United States Senate. Support me. I'm running for the United States. There's something going on there. But I was all set. I was all set. And, you know, when I focus and we all focus, sometimes you do well and some people choke. I watched Minnie Mike choke. When Minnie Mike was hit by a very mean woman, he said, get me off this stage. Just get me off... And, and that wasn't a pretty sight to be what but, but I was all set to take on Bernie. I was ready. And then all of a sudden, I say, guess what? I went to the first lady who people love. They, I go into the first lady. And I said, I said, he just won Texas. He just won, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, so close. It was a whole different thing because of her. So now I'm ready for Bernie. And now all of a sudden, I have a whole different, you know, it's a whole different deal. Two very different people.
2: And so that's a roundabout way, uh, in addition to working up some of his new material that he's trying out at uh, the Funny Bone in Manhattan, I presume, a roundabout way of saying it's going to be Biden and that's who I'm preparing for. So my preference notwithstanding, I'm preparing for Biden. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Tim Carney, senior political columnist for The Washington Examiner and author of Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. Tim, thanks for being with us
7: thank you for having me
2: so uh you uh write in the examiner that um one i mean sort of implied that uh, the combination of bloomberg and warren going away doesn't really change the trajectory of the race that much and uh, also warren's uh, resistance to endorse anybody may say something about where warren supporters actually are in this race in terms of second choices
7: yeah, it's easy to think that Warren is the other candidate of the left. That some people who, you know, they're, they were Warren or Bernie. And I met a ton of those Warren or Bernie people who were sort of really into policy. They wanted Medicare for all. They're on the left, but that wasn't a majority of Warren supporters. And uh, in the in the piece at the Examiner, I go through some of the polling. I go through some of the survey data and show that the best description of a Warren uh, supporter may be a college-educated white baby boom woman. Who really wanted a woman elected? Well, yeah. uh, Bernie's no more of that than Biden is. And among these elites, there's not a huge hankering for the sort of socialism and more importantly for the sort of radical political uh, revolution that Sanders is calling for. So it's pretty easy to get a, a sort of perspective of the Democratic Party from looking at their politicians. But the average Democratic voter, a majority of them, are going to go for Joe Biden because he's kind of a continuation of Obama, which they think went fine, rather than an overturning of the social order, which is the way you would think it is if you listen to Bernie or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez.
2: Well, it's funny you say that about uh, Warren, too, because uh, McArdle said something, uh, Megan McCardle, I should say, don't everybody assume that, everybody knows which McCardle I'm talking about, <laughs> uh, Megan McCardle said something uh, like that after, uh, uh, maybe it was the debate in Vegas, where Elizabeth Warren talks a lot about the middle class, but uh, uh, in terms of like that's what she says her campaign is about. But the way she addresses issues really is about sort of the uh, the, the, the convenience concerns of upper income uh, white women, white suburban women, when she talks about things like um, – the composition of the child work uh, uh, of childcare workers and so forth, yep. um, and uh, and that's really what it, her candidacy turned out to be. That's in part why it had such limitation.
7: No, it's right. And the the analogous thing was um, there was an excellent piece about how Warren is doing really well in racking up activists in sort of the the multicultural. Uh, woke intersectionality world, black activists, Hispanic activists, gay activists, women's rights activists. But if you look at the majority of those populations, she was polling in third or fourth place among African-American voters, Hispanic voters, etc. cetera. Um, so she, uh, again, the, the elites, the people at the top, the, the people with access to power, I call it the connected class. Elizabeth Warren was a candidate of the left side of the connected class. Buttigieg was a candidate of sort of the middle left of the connected class. And that's, that's one reason they both were flaming out, is they were competing over a very loud, very powerful demographic that was not a majority of the Democratic Party, much less the whole country. Meanwhile, uh, Biden uh, was was going after, along with Amy Klobuchar and others, was going after the broader swath of kind of the – the average uh, Democrat and the average Hispanic Democrat doesn't want to be called Latinx. <laughs>
5: the
7: average yeah. black Democrat goes to church on Sundays and doesn't want, you know, uh, the sort of revolution that Bernie and Warren are preaching.
2: And, and so on, on Warren, too, what does she do? Is she if she if she can't endorse Joe Biden without destroying her brand, and may she may not want to endorse Sanders if she doesn't think he can win. So does she just sit on the sidelines? Yeah, it's pretty easy
7: to sit on the sidelines. Just say, look, I respect the voters of the Democratic Party, and I'll let them make up their mind, especially because it's a of conflict. I mean, record this so that if I'm totally wrong, you can play it back to me. <laughs> okay. But I would be very shocked if Joe Biden does not win the nomination, barring something like a, a massive health problem. Um, and so, and yeah, so it's pretty easy for her to sit it out because – If Biden gets uh, if Biden wins Michigan, which Sanders won four years ago, and then gets 70 percent in Florida, which is entirely possible, then the writing is kind of on the wall.
2: Uh, When we come back with uh, Tim Carney, I want to pick up this discussion of Biden. Let's start from the premise that he'll be the nominee and then how that plays out, as Trump was uh, in part commenting on at his uh, Fox News Town Hall last night. Tim Carney, senior political columnist for the Washington Examiner, author of the book Alienated America. We'll be back with more of him right after this.
3: All right, getting good
4: grades, the
3: future's so bright, I've got to wear i got to wear shades. And Corn Pop was a
4: bad dude, and he ran a bunch of bad boys. It's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? You have men to caucus? No, you haven't. You're a line dog-faced pony soldier.
3: Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. I'm beginning to see why your wife left you. If you agree with me, go to Joe30330 and help me in this fight. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Look me over. If you'd like to see, help out. If not, vote for
8: the other by. Give me a look, though, okay?
0: You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, again referencing that uh, Trump town hall last night, Fox News Channel hosted. Uh, This is anecdotal, but I think there's uh, something instructive about it. This is uh, Dave from Pennsylvania. Lifelong Democrats switched over to vote for Trump in uh, 2016, and he's sticking with Trump.
1: I'm focused on the economy and on regulation and deregulation, and I like what's happened in the country in the last four years. And I'm Thank
2: you. Uh, thankful Thank for you, your David. efforts, sir, and uh, I hope we can continue on that. Thank you. Thank you.
8: Thank you, Thank you
2: yeah, uh, talking to Tim Carney, Washington examiner, senior columnist, uh, senior political columnist, author of the book Alienated America. Um, Tim, uh, those uh, Trump voters in those uh, uh, blue, formerly blue wall states that went that uh, took those blue walls down for Trump in 2016, you know, they're sticking with him. They like what he's done. And maybe they stick with him, even if a coronavirus uh, otherwise derails the kind of uh, uh, economic vitality America's enjoyed in the first three years of Trump.
7: It's crucial that this economy is strong for Trump and it will be difficult uh, if the economy turns really down, in the way the stock market has hinted, but the, the two sort of groups of the kind of uh, former Democrat, uh, especially Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, a lot of blue-collar workers in those places, first a lot of them came out of the woodwork and voted for Trump, and I think basically every single one of them is going to vote for Trump again. Uh, not you know unless something unforeseeable. But then there's also a lot of Democrats who didn't, a lot of working class folks who said, I'm not going to vote for a Republican, much less this guy who, who, you know, strikes them as annoying, strikes them as bombastic. But then they kind of see the results of the economy, which still are very good. And then they see the Democrats reduced to impeachment over some phone call about Ukraine. And I talked to multiple voters who said, I voted for Hillary or I stayed home because I didn't like Hillary, but now I'm actually going to vote Trump. So Trump could make, in fact, further inroads into, he, into the working class. He did better than any Republican recently has among uh, workers without a uh, college education. And I think he could make further inroads into that, which could make it a lot harder for a Democrat to, to win back Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Iowa. That said – I think Joe Biden is pretty well positioned to be the guy to try to pick those people off. Um, So I I think Trump really wanted anybody but Biden. um, But still, I see him making inroads into the working class.
2: Uh, It seems to me that uh, there are three buckets of vulnerabilities for Biden. And I wonder which you think is the most concerning, the most he has to guard against. One is you know, he he was pushed left in this primary. He was a member of the left wing of the party for his entire Senate career. He's just too far left of the country Two is competence. He just doesn't have the mental acuity, can't keep it together. And three is, you know, the uh, the corruption, the self-dealing to enrich your family through your public office, Clinton style, as so documented by Peter Schweitzer.
7: So I think the mental acuity is the biggest problem. I think that, uh, you know, just sort of gross factual errors of his son was the attorney general of the United States. He's running for U.S. Senate. What day of the week it is? Where the hell am I? All of that stuff. I mean, he's not going to. That really is going to worry people. I mean, we talk about age worrying people, but uh, Bloomberg looks like he has it together. Sanders is no more crazy than he was as a 30-year-old. Right. Uh, but right. Biden, we've seen him in uh, 2008 and 2012 running in these elections, and you can see the decline and you could imagine a trajectory that said, I, I'm not saying that the ideological shift doesn't matter. He used to have kind of the middle of America view on abortion, which is to say, I think it should generally uh, be legal sometimes be illegal and we shouldn't subsidize it. But now he's totally all the way over on the extreme left view because his uh, party's fundraiser base made him do it. And, that one particular, I think there's some voters. if We're talking about working class people in Pennsylvania who are exactly that. They're not religious right voters, but the idea that their taxpayers should subsidize an, their tax dollars subsidize an abortion is just is just well beyond the pale. So, but mostly I think it's people seeing him, especially if you've seen your parents, your spouse in a decline. You don't want a president who's going through that for four or eight years.
2: And so it makes his VP pick that much more important too, as a, sort of a. Uh, people that may have concerns, depending on his performance, say, well, at least we have candidate X as a backstop and I'm comfortable with candidate X.
5: Yeah.
7: And I think Warren might be a real uh, a real negative there. I think Kamala Harris would be a real negative there. I think he's got to pick a woman. (laughs) I mean, Democrats uh, with their identity politics, we we got the black guy. Um, You know, one day, one point we'll get the gay guy. But at this point, they need a woman. Um, So some people talk about Klobuchar. Does that alienate the, the liberal base? So maybe he's clever enough to come up with a person who, who straddles, gets uh, the Bernie Kratz to mostly turn out and doesn't scare off the people who are saying, wait a second, Biden might be fine, but I don't want Kamala coming yeah, in and right. taking over and arresting us all.
2: <laughs> right. Well, uh, yeah, that, I'm sure they're uh, pouring through their binders of women to try to identify that individual. Uh, he is Tim Carney, senior political columnist for the Washington Examiner, author of the book *Alienated America: Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse*. Tim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
7: Thank you for having me. Why can't we be Why
0: can't Exposing we be political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Our friend Rick Santelli, the godfather, uh, is shocking. I never thought I'd say this. After the Dow sell-off yesterday uh, caused uh, the average to drop 900 points, uh, Santelli said, I, obviously sort of tongue-in-cheek, which is not being received that way in certain quarters, but tongue-in-cheek would be, just be better if everybody in the world got the coronavirus. We so could be over with it, and the uncertainty could be done. Uh, for more on the topic, including... Against the backdrop of the February jobs report, two hundred seventy-three thousand jobs created in February—that's a pretty strong number. Scott Chalady, Scott the Cow Guy, Chalady joins us. Uh, uh, that was a cow that has not been saved yet by Joaquin Phoenix, so as a little testy. Uh, Scott, uh, good jobs number uh, and a roller coaster on the market. Well, wow, I mean. <laughs> these numbers on their own are
1: fantastic, but it just doesn't matter. Uh, they're going to be ignored. They're pre coronavirus Um, the number that we got this morning, the highest since 19 or since 18, uh, we are back down to a 50 year low on that unemployment rate. I mean, all of these things pretty much across the board, um, are great. I guess the worst thing you can say is that the government job sector also rose. That's the worst thing about this, you know, the jobs number. So it's good, but it doesn't matter because we're still gripped with this, uh, with this hysteria and it's, it's unfortunate because you know the leaders of um, uh, businesses and, and education and whomever if you are a leader today you can't err on the side of caution now you have to err on the side of hysteria and that's eked into the markets.
2: Well and right and so that the hysteria may be uh, based on um, uh, based on very little but it has a very real impact uh, in terms of uh, the economy Southwest Airlines CEO Gary Kelly telling CNBC yesterday, that the uh, drop off in domestic travel over coronavirus has a nine eleven like feel. That's not calming.
1: No, and after nine eleven, we did see a lot of layoffs. We haven't seen that yet, and that's really what you're going to have to keep keep in mind. Uh, watch those weekly numbers about job layoffs or unemployment numbers. We we get them every Thursday. Uh, but consumer confidence uh, up until now has been high, um, and these rates. Oh my gosh, the ten year and the thirty year yields coming way in. Um, So we've seen a seven-year high in uh, refinancing. So all of those seem good. But the problem here, Dan, and this is what I've I've been railing on, and I feel like nobody's listening, you know, the Fed is so clueless because they think that you can solve the virus with an interest rate cut. Now, we could cut rates 2% today and make them negative in the the states, and it's not going to bring, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith out of their house to go to a soccer match or a baseball game or whatever, they're still scared so no matter what you do economically speaking or monetarily speaking to the economy it's not going to solve people's fear of the virus and the fed just doesn't get it so we're wasting our bullets now when they're not going to have any impact
2: there are so many instances of misreporting uh, by the media about coronavirus Uh, it's creating economic scares in addition to public health scares so for example The uh, Home and Garden Show that was supposed to be held at McCormick Place in Chicago that was canceled was canceled less about less over fear of uh, spreading coronavirus and more because a number of uh, Chinese interests uh, Chinese interests could get out of China to make it to the show and they have a substantial impact on the success of the show. So that's actually why it was canceled. So it's sort of indirectly related to coronavirus. Uh, What do you uh, make of this type of reporting and the impact it has on the markets?
1: Well, but if you but telling the truth doesn't sell ad space, unfortunately, and that's the problem. So every you know every morning you get up and hear all we hear about is the the, the coronavirus and the new statistics. And it's like they're uh, they're giving me a new statistic on how many people had the got the flu today, right? Uh, headlines this morning is that yes, your dog can get the coronavirus, but it's okay; it won't hurt you. I mean, are you kidding me? Is this really headline news? So that's what we're having to deal with in the markets here. And this hysteria is causing people to really panic. And the volatility, which I, I haven't ever seen it like this. I mean, we were up 1,100 two days ago, down a 1,000 yesterday. Uh, and again, we're down hard again today, even in the face of a great jobs number, because the you know everybody knows it just doesn't matter about the jobs. It's pre-corona. We're still having to deal with this virus. And until we have a path to some sort of treatment or a path to some sort of vaccine, We're in this for the for the short term, for sure.
2: So, uh, you know, it's not sensible to me panic with panic. That's what I would describe the Fed as having done, as you were sort of detailing. And so, what about for the you know the uh, average investor? So, what about for the average investor? Should they uh, uh, hold serve? You
1: know, I would I would say so, even though it's hard and it's harder. You know, the older you get, that this gets really really dicey. Uh, But if you still have some investment years left or investing years left.
2: Uh, remember, you could have the $5. Hey, Scott, we're $5. losing you.
1: Hey, can you hear me? Yeah. Now, if you, if, if, depending on how many years you have left to invest, I mean, you could have bought the high in the Dow over the last 20 years every year and be a very, very wealthy person. So you kind of have to, if you've got years left, you kind of have to write it out. The people that are going to get caught as collateral damage are those about to retire, and that's bad. And that's what this is really sad about because those people had seen some quality gains. Now, yes, they're still probably up over the last five years. However, this is going to really take the top off of what have been what would have been really good.
2: And, and so, uh, so that plus looking at the weekly jobs numbers in terms of right March being a pivotal month because now we, we should start to see some impact, economic impact on employment numbers in March and April if we're going to see it at all.
1: Yeah, that's why I say you should continue to look at that un- the the jobless, jobless numbers every Thursday. The people that are filing first time claims that's going to be the real tell. We haven't seen a lot of that yet. We did see that after 9-11. We haven't seen a lot of that yet. But that's going to be another thing that I would look at, as well as the number of cases and who's getting better and how fast. Those are going to be real big short-term indicators.
2: And how much stock should we put in the Goldman Sachs uh, uh, estimate that uh, revises down GDP growth this year by a full percentage point because of corona?
1: I'm just – if it's, de- it's definitely going to go down. I don't think it's going to go down by a full percentage. And that has all to do with the fact that they're going to try to tell you they ha- they know how long it's going to linger. It could be another nine months. You know, who knows how long this takes. So it'll have an impact. Uh, the argument is, is when we finally get through this as far as the number of new cases and the number of people getting better. Um, so Goldman Sachs is right with, with rezi- revising it down, but that's almost cutting it in half. I don't know about that.
2: He is Scott the Cow Guy Schlady, Fox Business Contributor and uh, friend of the show. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
1: All right. See you. Thanks. Have a good weekend.
0: The Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So, are you ready for a little example of journalist math and math skills? <laughs> this exchange. Between MSNBC fabulist and uh, superhero in his own mind, Brian Williams, and uh, an esteemed member of the New York Times editorial board, a woman named Mara Gay, talking about Bloomberg's spend on his ill-fated presidential campaign.
9: Um, somebody tweeted recently that um, actually with the money he spent, he could have given every American a million dollars. i got it.
2: Let's put it up yeah. on the screen.
9: It,
0: when I read it. Uh, tonight on social media, it kind of all became clear. Bloomberg spent five hundred million on ads. U.S. population three hundred twenty-seven million. Uh, don't tell us if you're ahead of us on the math. He could have given each American one million dollars and have had lunch money left over. It's an incredible way of putting it.
9: It's an incredible way of putting it. It's true. It's disturbing. It does. It does suggest, you know, what we're talking about here, which is there, there's too much money in politics.
2: What it does suggest is there's too many dum dums in journalism. Uh, Three hundred thirty million people, rounding, times a million equals five hundred million. No, a little back of the envelope math that uh, a grade schooler could do would tell you that's about a dollar and fifty one cents per American. Actually, if he had distributed the half a billion dollars to Americans rather than financing his campaign, that's what it tells you, Mara Gay esteemed editorial board member of the great lady. Are you kidding me with these two? It, 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 it's, it's almost like the uh, formulation of the Trump 2016 campaign. I know these people. They're even worse than you think. They're even worse than we used to think. Now we know. <laughs> In point of fact, uh, it would require something like a uh, 33 to the 14th power, $330 trillion to give every one of 330 million Americans a million dollars, lady and gentleman. Uh I see the rest of my time to Jim Gaffigan.
4: I watch a lot of cable news because I enjoy being depressed. <laughs> That's the only reason to watch. After five minutes, they just repeat the same stories. Remember that horrible thing? Wait till we show you 20 more times. <laughs> you won't be able to sleep. I think it's interesting how all the cable newscasters are very attractive. They're very attractive and they're dressed up. I don't know why. You know, you're talking about a hurricane. What's with the evening gown? <laughs> but we all kind of watch, like, thanks for showing some leg.
2: Cable. It's to distract you from their math skills. This is the damn prop show. Woohoo!
4: I'm a
1: college man! I won't need my high school diploma anymore! I
10: am so smart. I am so smart. I am the smart! I am the smart! S-M-R-T, I I mean SMARRT!
2: Welcome to the Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us again. Come, uh, come and follow us on social media, at Dan Prof uh, on Facebook. And, uh, at Dan Prof Show, I should say, on Facebook and Twitter, as well as at Dan Prof on Twitter, if you like. Uh, we're pleased to be joined now by Tiffany Fitzhenry. We talked about uh, this story that uh, she unearthed and posted to her blog, TiffanyFitzhenry.com, about the sexual abuse of children in Hollywood. Well beyond uh, the Harvey Weinstein and some of the other high-profile cases of boorish to criminal sexual conduct uh, by big shots in Hollywood, I'm talking about kids here—kids being groomed, including, including, at Disney. Tiffany FitzHenry is the author of the number of uh, Amazon uh, number-one best-selling trilogy, *The Oldest Soul*. Founder of Hierarchy Publishing. A promising screenwriter, and I guess she still is, but a but a little bit less promising in Hollywood after she decided to start speaking out and using her writing skills to detail these cases of alleged sexual abuse in Hollywood, most notably the Ricky Garcia case, which we want to talk to her about. Tiffany Fitzhenry, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Um, l- let's start with the Ricky Garcia case, and you know your best position to uh, summarize this case and the implications. Uh, so this case that you came upon, and and where it stands now, Ricky Garcia?
11: This is such a tragic and so tragically common thing that goes on in Hollywood. You know, we've had this problem for such a long time, and people don't speak out about this issue. And there's a reason, you know, this is like the issue that no one really will let you talk about, or that the powers that be are, I guess, the most afraid of. But Ricky's story was very typical in a lot of ways and so tragic because he was— a really talented and is, still is, a really talented young man. And he came into Hollywood at 12. And from the get-go, he was surrounded by people who were child abusers. And then he was essentially groomed and passed around. And right now, there is a lawsuit that is ongoing, just like with Jordan Pruitt, another star who was part of the Disney machine who has actually also filed a lawsuit. These are new developments that we're seeing, these people who have been abused within this system starting to actually – Go after these behemoths in a way that is, I think, a game changer for victims, particularly. And there's so many of them. But Ricky's doing well. Like all victims, it's very, very, very hard to watch your perpetrators, watch there not be justice yet. But the process is long. So he's involved in a civil lawsuit at the moment. And his mom came to me uh, and really just wanted to tell her story. And I was honored and really humbled. To help her tell her story,
2: Ricky it's Garcia. Ricky's not, how old now?
11: He just turned twenty-one. Right. So this, this is year. so
2: we're go, we're we're clawing back a decade, and you you provide all this detail in your write-up here. But but he cut. He and his mom come to Hollywood. They get an agent. Um, you know, it, it 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 was very reminiscent, frankly, of the Neverland documentary to some extent. You know, you're wowed by Hollywood and these opportunities, these doors that are opening for Ricky. And it seemed to me there was a little bit of suspension of disbelief about a, a twelve your twelve year old son being shepherded around by um, young men you don't know that are Hollywood agents and being taken to parties or invited to parties, not being chaperoned, parents not welcome. Uh, there's alcohol, there's drugs, there's sex and things just spiral, and I wonder if you can give us a, a bit of insight into how quickly that can progress, as it did apparently in Ricky's case, because uh, that was a little bit different than anything we saw on screen, like in the Michael Jackson case.
11: This is the biosphere of the closed control power system of Hollywood. It's It operates a lot like any um, abuser operates. They isolate, right? There's all these tactics that bring um that give abusers more power over victims and it you know it's so indicative of the fact that you know hollywood is not a one big open door right hollywood is a closed power system there's a reason that harvey weinstein operated for 30 years as harvey weinstein and everyone knew who and what he was there's a reason that he had arguably some of you know the most power in the business and you know had every oscar winner and coronated every it girl um there's a game that you play and so even children and their parents are made aware that listen you can't be a stage mom you know you've got to let the manager and the agent handle your child let them handle your business No, and they need to go to this party because this executive is going to be there and they've got a project and I want them to meet Ricky and it it's it's a grooming process of the child and the parent and because there's this sense of scarcity where it's you're trying to fight for every part you're trying to fight just to be there um everybody is kind of just suspend their better judgment do you know what i mean so a lot of parents obviously leave hollywood and they go this is not for us you know what i mean but um and that's always everybody's option right so you have to take that into account right but you've got talented kids who should have every right and reason to take part in mainstream storytelling but this is what you have to Put up with. This is the system that currently exists. But people like me are building a tremendous amount right now outside this system. And God is building an army, frankly. And um, this, this this is going to be a safe place for people and children and everyone to work. So it's it's going to be lights out in a in a year in a year from now. So it's not going to matter. But this is we're going to have to dissect this anyway. But this is how Hollywood functions.
2: There was an interview that Lawrence Fishburne gave to Terry Gross over at NPR several years back, and He talked about being a child star, child actor, uh, maybe not star, but certainly a child actor, and uh, how his dad would be on set with a a baseball bat every day that he filmed. And Terry Gross asked, why was he abusing you? And Lawrence Fisher was like, what? No, he wasn't abusing me. He was keeping adults away from abusing me. And yeah. I, it's just sort of a remarkable statement for uh, somebody who's obviously now a, a big Hollywood star. And Terry Gross, you know, completely blind to the possibility that uh, there are predators in Hollywood like that, that prey on these young stars. But, but with all of the cases that have now been unearthed, and as you're suggesting, there's many more to come. It, it's really a culture that seems to need to be, um, uh, well, uh, fumigated at minimum.
11: Well, there's a reckoning coming. So if you thought Me Too was interesting and it made people very blown away to know that, you know, you've got people like Les Moonves, you know, people running CBS, you've got Matt Lauer. There's nobody more powerful in, you know, daytime television, that these people are monstrous and that the things that they're doing are beyond the pale and they're being protected within these enormous conglomerates. You haven't seen anything yet. Well, why in terms of the reckoning that's coming? Yeah,
2: and, and and why why is it taking so long for this reckoning to come? Why are are you one of the few writing about Ricky Garcia? Why, I mean, Corey Feldman yeah. Corey Feldman created a bit of a stir and continues to create a bit of a stir, but there just hasn't been the sort of um, discussion, awareness, uh, high profile cases of this sort like there have been, you know, against Weinstein or Cosby or whoever Lauer.
11: Yeah, look, this is the one issue that uh, you just don't talk about. So they make it very difficult. They make it painful. Uh, there were, you know, there's, there's, there, there's threats. I mean, there's, it's, it's so much, uh, so many. Listen, you got people like Brian Peck, right? Who was served jail time for child rape and then is rehired by these megalithic corporations that run Hollywood, rehired to work. Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, which is a children's show. It's Hmm. mind-boggling. So you can blacklist actresses like Ashley Judd because Harvey Weinstein told you to, but Hollywood has never blacklisted pedophiles. Not ever. It's interesting. I mean, and it's, there's a reckoning that is coming in a way that I think we don't know how or or when, you know, because they do make it so hard. But You just look at Victor Salvo. You know, these people serve prison time. They are convicted child sex offenders, child rapists, and then they're rehired by these corporations. And it's to work around children. So you're going to have to reckon with that and how that comes, what that's going to look like. I don't know.
2: And as I understand with Ricky Garcia, his his representation, his agents, And his lead agent, who was uh, part of the uh, alleged sexual abuse ring, one of the people that uh, abused and was a party, a a facilitator of abusing Ricky Garcia. He's still working in Hollywood. He still has a, a big clientele base. He's still a big shot.
11: That's what's so hard for these victims. Not only are these people still walking the street, and someone like Ricky's come out and said, to, to absolutely his no, no benefit of his, right, to his own detriment, come out and said, this person, when I was growing up, all these years did all these terrible things to me. So that's so difficult to do. People, don't, people really underestimate what that feels like for a victim to say that all these things happened to me. Um, and to know that this person is still embraced within Hollywood and still working and still walking the streets it's being victimized all over again. It really is very difficult mentally and emotionally for
5: victims.
2: When we come back with Tiffany Fitzhenry, I want to um, talk about uh, uh, Bob Iger stepping down as CEO of Disney. You find the timing a bit curious, and I also want to get into your story a little bit, uh, your experience in Hollywood as a as an aspiring and successful uh, screenwriter. Uh, more with Tiffany Fitzhenry, author of the Amazon number one best selling trilogy, The Oldest Soul, and founder of Hierarchy Publishing. Right after this.
5: If I
2: if I gave it. Oh. grab a good seat and sharpen
0: your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
2: Welcome back to the Dan Pop Show. We're speaking with Tiffany Fitzhenry. She's the author of the Amazon number one best-selling trilogy, The Oldest Soul, and founder of Hierarchy Publishing. And we're talking about a culture of pedophilia. There's no other way to describe it in Hollywood. And uh, some some cases that she has spotlighted, including the Ricky Garcia case that we had been talking about in detail. Ricky Garcia starts out with Disney, uh, gets his big break with Disney, I should say, part of a boy band and acting and all these things. You tweeted out after Harvey Weinstein was convicted of sex crimes in New York that uh, Bob Iger suddenly steps down as CEO of Disney. Disney owned Weinstein's company for decades, so this is curious, obviously. And um, uh, I just wanted you to develop that connection between Weinstein and Iger and Weinstein and Disney a little bit more.
11: Well, you just have to ask some questions. I mean, there were decades of countless suits that he settled, right? So there's a whole paper trail beyond the fact that there was an absolute open secret about Harvey Weinstein and abuse, you know, the abuser and the serial sexual abuser and rapist you know, that he was. I don't know how Disney has any sort of plausible deniability. I mean, I don't know how you could really not know if you've got these giant chunks of money going out all the time In these payoffs and these settlements and all of this stuff and so harvey weinstein is a very big fish to fall the fact that he has gone to rikers island as of today and that he you know has been convicted of these crimes and don't forget there's another case in la that is even worse right you just look at bob Iger stepping down the very next day from the company that owned the weinstein company during all of these crimes and all of this time I don't know why the news wouldn't connect those dots or ask those ask questions, the but question. of course they don't.
2: Right. right, it is curious. So perhaps the answer is, we don't know, but perhaps the answer is mm-hmm. he wants to get clear of uh, Disney before shoes start dropping that you're suggesting might start dropping. And I mean, Disney, you know, Weinstein is one thing. I mean, Disney is one of those iconic brands in America. I mean, this is the company that gives us the Frozen movies. This is all, you know, apple pie and American flags and goodness and wonderful programming for kids that everybody loves. If it becomes known that this is potentially allegedly a den of iniquity, as you're describing, like in the Ricky Garcia case, then the whole thing comes tumbling down, potentially.
11: Yeah, I mean, that's their brand, right? And so if this is their brand and you've got people like Jordan Pruitt saying... This abuser was put around me by these people that I was supposed to trust the most. My label, Hollywood Records, this is Disney. You've got these people going to the court system in in a documented fashion saying that this giant corporation that is supposed to be this thing that you just described has some real problems with, you know, not only not protecting children, but possibly even knowing about abuses. And what is that going to look like for a corporation like that? Forget from a PR standpoint. You know, I just think yeah. it, the whole thing is, is, is very toxic and it's very um, ominous.
2: This other dynamic that you picked up upon with uh, Cindy McCain's uh, uh, pronouncements about uh, Jeffrey Epstein <laughs> back at the end of January is this sort of innocent bystander uh, crisis calm work that uh, people in the know do. Cindy McCain talking about Jeffrey Epstein. He was hiding in plain sight. We all knew about him. We all knew what he was doing, but but we had no one that was no legal aspect that would go after him they were afraid of him for whatever reason they were afraid of him i mean this is somebody who was married to one of the most powerful senators in the united states during his time and and we're all saying oh everybody knew everybody knew about the lolita express everybody knew about harvey weinstein but nobody could do anything about it well in point of fact don't you have people in power whether they have the power of law enforcement or not that are complicit with what's going on
11: if these are the people in the highest offices in the land and they knew and they couldn't do anything about it, it's because they were the wrong people that were in office. Who, if not them, who, if not our highest elected officials, they can't make anything happen to protect children. I'm sorry. We obviously had the wrong people there. You know, so someone like John McCain and someone, you know, Cindy McCain's comments were very revealing and not in the way that she wanted them to be. And I think that people need to take a good hard look and really sit with what she said, because what it means is that the wrong people are in power. Her husband was the wrong person to be in power. If you knew children were being abused, if you knew about the Lolita Express, you've got a lot of blood on your hands, and you've got a lot of people do in, in the hollows of power of this country over the last decade.
2: I wanted to get to your backstory, too, on this, uh, um, what brought you to uh, this uh, crusade mm-hmm. that you're on as somebody who could have played the game in Hollywood, was doing actually quite well, as I understand it, as a, as a, a budding screenwriter and then uh, took this tangent, if you just give us your backstory.
11: Yeah, I'm a person of great faith, um, and God informs my entire life. And quite simply, God told me, as I had a show— so basically what I do is I I write pilots and create shows, and so have had incredible opportunities through things that I've created that brought me into the very inner sanctum of Hollywood— You know, taking network meetings with the top people at NBC, ABC, who wanted to put my shows on the air and um, having big stars attached to produce and star in your show and all this great stuff. And all along, so this was, you know, over the last, I would say since 2012, you know, was the time I wrote my first pilot that got me, you know, my career just launched within this closed power system of Hollywood, right? So I got a really incredible glimpse into a world that very, very few people ever do. And God built me in such a way to, I I wasn't going to sell my soul for these things. And that was immediately put in front of me in the form of, you know, having these great reps, having these powerful people around me, you know, asking for news, asking me to do all these things. And I was just like, what is, I mean, I'm married, I have kids, you know, I'm just a, I'm a regular mom. I'm like, you know, very, I didn't grow up in Hollywood. I did work in Hollywood in my early twenties, you know, after film school, things like that. But I just was so amazed and so just sort of you know not just obviously put off but also in denial like gosh maybe it's just my reps, so maybe it's just these people or these producers that you know I keep putting get put in the room with that are all you know these degenerates but you keep going and you keep writing and basically there came a time right after the Harvey Weinstein story broke that I just knew I had I had a project sitting on the desk of the head of drama development at Fox I'm sitting on the desk of a partner at CAA, and I was like, I need to make a Periscope video and because I need to explain to America, actually, a lot of these people are degenerates. And no one's going to tell you because they don't want to lose their place, but I feel God telling me to build something new and that Hollywood Hollywood can do what it wants to do. It can be what it wants to be, but it shouldn't be our one who, you know, who elected them, who anointed them to create, to have the power over all of our content over all of our stories. And it really got me thinking about why stories are so important and why storytelling is so important to a culture and to a society. And, you know, through this process, um, I've connected with all of these like-minded people. And we are basically joining forces, you know, and things are going to get a lot better for people in terms of their choices for content. And they're going to, you know, not be having to put up with all of the agendas. And the different things that are coming out of Hollywood now really unmasked. You've got Disney movies with, you know, lesbian characters and all this stuff, you know, for very small children. And, and there's, there's just a big swath of the population who really doesn't want that for their children. And, and they're, they're and they're going to have an option now, you know, coming in the future very soon. So it's, it's, it's something like doing what I did was like jumping off a bridge. It was the most insane thing to do. Um, it was very scary. I basically really had to just trust in God to know that speaking out and trying to educate people is the right thing to do. And that, you know, we will be able to build something
2: new. She is Tiffany Fitzhenry. You're going to want to follow her career and her work product clearly. Author of the Amazon number one best selling trilogy, The Oldest Soul, founder of Hierarchy Publishing, com is the website, and I'll, uh, you know, post all of this on social media as well. Tiffany Fitzhenry, thanks so much for joining us. Really uh, interesting and keep uh, interesting stuff and keep up the great work. Appreciate it. Thank
11: you. Thanks for having me. Take care. And I'm feeling.
0: You're listening to The Dan Proft Show On the Salem Radio Network
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show Nicholas Christoph. Writing in the New York Times about uh, Joe Biden, agent of change. Talk about, talk about uh, working on the uh, rebranding of Joe Biden with uh, great alacrity of the uh, Beltway Press Corps. Uh, Nicholas Kristof writing, Biden is plodding and uncharismatic, but he has a solid working class credentials. And he's also one of the most decent people in politics. His empathy is hard won from the pain of the loss of two children. Samantha Power, the former ambassador to the U.N., says Biden would give his private cell phone number to strangers who had suffered great personal loss, saying, if you feel low and have no place to turn, call me. That's one perspective. Another perspective comes to us from Kevin Williams in the National Review on Joe Biden. He is a vicious self-serving political hack, one whose ambition leads him from time to time into shocking indecency. You may have heard that Biden lost his wife and daughter in a horrifying drunk driving wreck, the fault of a monster of a man who irresponsibly drank his lunch, as Biden puts it. The problem is that never happened. They, Of course, his uh, first wife and daughter did die in a car wreck, and that's tragic. That's, that is true. It's not true that the driver was drunk. And it's an example of the uh, Joe Biden, the fabulist slash plagiarist slash self-serving political hack to borrow a Kevin Williamson-ism. For more on this, pleased to be joined by David French, senior editor at The Dispatch, columnist for Time. He's also an Iraqi war vet and constitutional lawyer, and we want to get to uh, matters SCOTUS-related as well. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
12: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
2: So, uh, Nicholas Kristof and Kevin Williamson, those two views are pretty much mutually exclusive. Who's right? (laughs)
12: Well, I mean, they're both right because they're making a factual assertion that's true about each about the man so it is true that he has been remarkably compassionate towards other people who've suffered loss and he has been reached out to people personally There's stories about that that are true it's also true that it, particularly in his campaigning mode uh he has plagiarized he has said false things about the crash, that horrible crash uh can't forget the put y'all back in chain mm-hmm. claim that he, mm-hmm. that he made in 2012 about Mitt Romney. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, this is this is one of those circumstances in which there's two sides of the guy. And, you know, so it's it, he's also the guy that when Mitch McConnell was saying goodbye to him in the Senate after, you know, the end of his vice presidency, or as his vice presidency came to a close at, Mitch McConnell choked up and describing his relationship with Joe Biden. And he's also the same guy that I remember watching the vice presidential debate in 2012 and just being just furious at
13: the sneering
12: and condescending way that he treated Paul Ryan. So, you know, there's this old saying that two sides of the same coin. Uh, I think you've got with Joe Biden two sides of the same coin.
2: Is uh, his hail fellow well-met routine going to be enough, you do think, uh, based on what we've seen thus far, to overcome questions about his sort of mental uh, uh, acuity for the job?
12: So I think, boy, that's tough to predict.
2: I would
12: would say this. I I would say that uh, he would do himself a lot of good if he came out and he talked about an issue that a lot of others have talked about for him, which is his historical battle with a stutter, and that that has had an impact on his the way that he speaks. I think if he was frank about that, that would help him. But I, I do think that the, the decline in his speaking ability is pretty obvious. Um, however, at the same time, he's been through multiple debates where he's done fine, he hasn't face-planted, and then we had another candidate, Mike Bloomberg, who nobody questions his cognitive decline at all. There's no hint of that. and the first debate he was in, he got obliterated right. And so it's really hard to predict. but I will tell you this, I think if he's smart, the way that he's going to capitalize on and the way and his team is smart, the way he's going to capitalize going forward is going to be doubling down on that hail fellow well-met offering a temperamental contrast to bernie a temperamental contrast to trump that's going to be his calling card uh and and that's going to be his strength if he runs hard on policy like he's some sort of walk that will expose i think some of the problems that he has communicating his message so i think a lot of people who are giving him good advice are telling him hey you got to double down on uncle joe and leave the walkery to other people
2: Uh, When we come back with uh, David French, I want to talk about the cases before the high court. More with David French when we come back.
0: Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is The Dan Prof. Show.
2: We're back with David French, senior editor at The Dispatch, dispatch dispatch.com, columnist for time, Iraqi war vet, and constitutional lawyer. And uh, David, you uh, have uh, opined on the uh, Louisiana heartbeat law that is before the court, particularly after oral arguments. And what, if anything, we can divine, which is always a dangerous business from the, yeah. the questioning of the justices to the respective counsels. What's your sense? Of, and we'll get to Schumer in a second. But what's your sense on the merits of the court's disposition with respect to these heartbeat laws?
12: It's the admitting privileges law. The heartbeat law has a. I mean, the admitting
2: the privileges privilege. law. Excuse me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah.
12: Um, so if you're pro-life, I'm pro-life. I read the oral argument, and my heart sank. If you are trying to read tea leaves, and I say this every time you're talking about a potential case, I say, you can't always tell how the court is going to rule from oral argument. You can just usually tell. Okay. And if you're reading tea leaves on that basis, there is no reason to be optimistic. It struck me that there might be a 5-4 majority with Justice Roberts swinging over to the progressive judges to strike down the law. There might be even a 6-3 majority to uphold a Texas case called Whole Women's Health that was decided in 2016 that struck down the Texas heartbeat law. Um, and so I think the best case scenario, uh, based on the oral arguments, again, you know, with the caveat, you can't always tell. You can only usually tell. The best-case scenario is they uphold the Louisiana law, but only on the basis that it has no impact on abortion in the state. In other words, it's a law that is functionally irrelevant to abortion in Louisiana. If they find it at all relevant to abortion rate in Louisiana or to access to abortion, not abortion rate, access to abortion in Louisiana, I think they're going to strike down the law. And that is for people who have been working and voting and donating and activating for years to try to transform the balance of power on abortion in the Supreme Court, this could be a really devastating moment.
2: What, what about the argument that was advanced that um, abortion hurts women and so the, the uh, providers, the abortion providers suing, don't have standing because they're inherently conflicted with the patients who are being harmed, according to the state?
12: The problem with that argument is that the actual regulation that's at issue is imposed upon the doctors, so it does affect the doctor's practice. And so under traditional standing rules, the default is going to be that they would have standing. The conflict of interest argument is the thing that could deprive them of standing, And again, if all you're doing is reading oral argument, there seemed to be only one justice who had any sort of interest in that, and that was Alito. Hmm. Um, Kavanaugh and – Gorsuch and Thomas were totally quiet. Kavanaugh and Roberts questioned the advocates, the attorneys, but they did not bring up the standing argument. I do think that conflict of interest argument is very interesting Uh, if they – If they ruled that the doctors would have no standing, that would be uh, a very interesting development, not just for abortion jurisprudence, but standing jurisprudence in general. Again, based on you can't always tell, but you can usually tell, (laughs) I don't see the standing argument prevailing.
2: What you're describing and what you're intuiting, turns out to be true. Then is this effectively just punting the matter again and and, uh, we wait for another term or two? Uh, for uh, another case to bubble up to the Supreme Court level that could have material impact on Roe v. Wade.
12: Yeah, I think so. This is if, if what I'm intuiting is a- actually occurs, what you would be dealing with is a essential reaffirmation of the Casey, uh, of the mm-hmm. fundamental Casey ruling, uh, and if, if the court essentially, if the court does that then what it will say is this court is not going to substantially – the court is currently constituted – is not going to substantially adjust abortion jurisprudence. It's just not.
2: And is that coming from Roberts, or is that coming from Roberts and Kavanaugh?
12: Well, it remains to be seen. I was most concerned about Roberts, but there's nothing that I read from Kavanaugh that gave me any, uh, any hope that he would be willing to reevaluate Casey. Uh, he was it was much more trying to fit this case within Casey as opposed to reevaluating anything elemental about Casey. So, uh, if I, again, this is all speculation. Yeah. Right. June,
2: right. But
12: if I'm if I'm speculating, I'm saying uh, it's probably five four to strike down the um, to strike down the Louisiana law, and it may even be six three in support of the basic Casey framework.
2: How does uh, what happened uh, this week uh, really factor in? I mean, it's hard to crawl into the minds of uh, these nine individuals on the high court, but um, the antics of Chuck Schumer and these rallies and the other legislators and Hollywood actresses, but particularly Schumer as the Senate minority leader making specific threats to specific members of the court, and uh, then Justice Roberts taking the unusual step uh, step of issuing a public response to the remarks that Chuck Schumer made. Does that impact um, sway? Uh, Is that something that um, uh, would tend to perhaps stiffen or weaken the spines of a Roberts or a Kavanaugh on some of these issues?
12: Well, it's not
2: supposed to.
12: It's supposed to be completely irrelevant. You know, you you can shout whatever you want to shout on outside the courthouse, but it's supposed to not matter at all to the judge's decision, to the justice's decision. But I've been a lawyer a a long time. And one of the things I would always tell my clients is don't make it hard for a court to rule for you. Mm-hmm. you know, don't, don't engage in conduct that would make a human being a judge who's a human being to want to rule against you or juries that are made up of human beings to want to rule against you. And from that standpoint, if, you're, if you support abortion rights, you're angry at Chuck Schumer. You should be furious at Chuck Schumer because he, he not only did he just step across a line, in a, a what not only is what he said completely outrageous uh, and completely unacceptable and 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 worthy of censure and he's he's walked it back in a very imperfect apology but uh, it was completely outrageous but also it does nothing to help your cause with the court now again ironically enough what he is hoping for is that the in saying those words he's essentially hoping. That the justices have a heck of a lot more character than he accused them of having. Uh, So he accuses them of being, you know, ridiculously biased. But if he's believing that that's the case, um, you, you, wouldn't you be trying extra hard to try to influence their, their vote in a way that doesn't personally insult them? Uh, it, It was a very odd, it was, it was, demagoguery is what it was. It was just pure demagoguery. And it was right for Justice Roberts to respond to that, completely right for him to do that, completely wrong for Schumer to do it. But I don't think it'll be relevant one way or the other to the outcome of the case.
2: He is David French, senior editor at The Dispatch, Dispatch dispatch.com, columnist for Time, Iraqi war vet, and constitutional lawyer, as you were just hearing. David French, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate
12: it. Thanks so much for having me. Take care.
0: Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Are you uh, engrossed in the Hillary Clinton Hulu documentary series? Uh, (laughs) Episode 3 of the uh, four part biography on Hillary Clinton. Premieres tonight, uh, apparently, and it focuses on the uh, Bill Clinton affair with Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> well, here's a little trailer the things the Clintons will do to get uh, Hulu su- subscribers and their residuals.
9: Are we ready? There's
6: so much to talk about. Okay. I didn't grow up thinking about going into politics, but much to my surprise was elected president of the Young Republicans. I got into law school. I thought i was going to try to make a difference in people's lives. I took a class
4: and I saw Hillary sitting there.
6: And he was watching me. She... Close yeah. the law book. I said, if you're going to keep looking at me, and I'm going to keep looking back, we ought to know each other's names.
4: I'm
0: autumn, Who are you? She was different than anybody I ever met. I said, I really want to marry you, but you shouldn't marry
5: me.
9: There is a set of expectations about a first lady. I violated them from the very beginning. She brought to the forefront women's roles in society. This is radical feminism.
0: It wasn't like I thought, how can I think about the most stupid thing I could possibly do and do it?
2: I did. There's the Monica Lewinsky kicker, uh, and uh, he goes on does uh, the aged Bill Clinton in the uh, uh, the the episode tonight uh, to uh, call his uh, affair with Monica Lewinsky something he did to quote manage my anxiety unquote. Here's something that'll take your mind off it for a while," said Bill Clinton of his two-year affair with Lewinsky. That began in 95 when she was 22 years old and he was times three, well, times two and a half that Uh, everybody, everybody's life has pressures and disappointments, terrors, fears or whatever things I did to manage my anxiety for years. Oh, you see, he's being recast. Uh, You know, Hillary wasn't an enabler and he wasn't, you know, an undisciplined cad uh, as opposed to a disciplined cad, and a disciplined cad, a bit redundant. But he wasn't a cad. He was he was—he uh, was just ill-equipped to cope with the anxieties. Some people turned to alcohol. Other people turned to drugs. And he turned to affairs on his wife in order, going all the way back to his days in Little Rock and politics in Arkansas, all the way up the political food chain to the White House. This coping mechanism, uh, probably something that uh, was a remnant of his childhood and the broken family and the difficulties that he had, and then trying to compete at Yale, this little kid from Hope, Arkansas, blah blah blah, blah blah, the story of redemption and understanding that he coped with the, the things that were pressing on him in the wrong way and uh these two despicable hillbilly criminals, and that's what they are. I don't care if they have degrees from Yale. Uh, I don't care if Hillary Clinton grew up in suburban Chicago. There are a couple of hillbilly criminals putting another fast one over or attempting to put another fast one over on the American people to rewrite the history so that people don't remember a generation or two from now just what hillbilly criminals they were. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Nancy Pelosi uh, uh, remarking upon the departure of Elizabeth Warren from the race yesterday, leaving uh, two white men of the silent generation As the choice for the party of diversity, all the identitarians, Nancy Pelosi is, uh, you know, she's borderline outraged.
9: But I do think there's a certain uh, element of misogyny that is that is there. And some of it isn't really mean spirited. It just isn't their experience. Many of them will tell you they had a strong mom, they have strong sisters, they have strong daughters. But but they, you know, they have their own insecurities.
2: (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, if you're uh, you uh, ladies out there, if you're tired of the amiable misogyny of uh, the Democrats, then come on over. We'll welcome you.
9: Are the women and girls who feel like we're left with two white men to decide between.
6: I know one of the hardest parts of this is all those promises and all those little girls who are going to have to wait four more years. Um, that's going to be hard.
11: Senator,
2: Senator, I think our uh, next guest may have a competing message to those uh, young ladies. She is Dana Lash. She's the host of the nationally syndicated The Dana Show, regular contributor to Fox News, former spokeswoman for the NRA. She has a new book. It's called Grace Canceled, How Outrage is Destroying Lives, Ending Debate and endangering democracy. Dana, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So um, what are we to do collectively to deal with the misogyny in the Democratic primary electorate that Nancy Pelosi was addressing?
9: I'm not surprised that it's a party of sexism. I mean, isn't that ultimately what we're discussing here? It's that it's, it's, it's a sexist ideology, sexist system. No, honestly, you know, I listening to some of these excuses that were given out by some of these Uh, pundits and political operatives last night, and there were a few of them who had said, well, it's just, I mean, there were verified the blue checkmark brigade on Twitter that were actually saying it's so sad, and yes, I'm shedding tears over this, that Elizabeth that's like Tulsi Gabbard's not in the race anymore. I guess if if they're so sad that a woman is not ascending to the ticket, that they're are they going to rally around Tulsi Gabbard? Or how about maybe if she didn't make it, how about people just, I don't know, maybe increase their standards and, and nominate an actual qualified, just individual, period? And if it happens to be a woman, so be it. Yeah, I think it's insulting to women, the way that they put this.
2: Well, T- uh, Tulsi Gabbard is a Russian agent, though, we understand from Hillary, so they can't nominate her. Um, but yeah, you're right. It not it, it interesting? The identitarian uh, politics of the left is really, uh, you see it sort of group by group. Uh, they remove agency from people. They do it with black voters. They do it with women. Um, you're at, at the same time to be empowered and elevated, but you're also a victim. You can do nothing without the white liberal man, basically.
9: Well, that's, that's it entirely. And they've, they've marketed themselves this way. I think the left for so long— the Democrat party in particular has wanted to sort of put a patent on all of these different identity boxes, whether you, you can't be authentically female, you can't be authentically gay, you can't be authentically Hispanic, you can't be authentically anything unless you're also a Democrat because they've conflated people with issues. And really, I mean, I think in, in some regards when you do that, you lose a sense of humanity and that's what we're seeing with this party. And the fact that so many people, I mean, just I was just watching the way that they were reacting and it was amusing, but also at the same time, it, it's just incredibly sad that this is what politics has now just evolved to.
2: Well, uh, I want, I want to get to your book too, because uh, you're not authentically a, a, a mom or a woman or a wife either, because you were the spokeswoman for the NRA, in addition to being a conservative talk show host and so forth. And, uh, you uh, recount, uh, there's an excerpt from your book that I read about, uh, how uh, you were treated and how the media sort of set you up with this uh, uh, town hall you participated in after the horrific shooting at the high school, uh, the Parkland High School. And I just wanted you to recount that, too, in terms of the the approach the media takes and the left takes to try and dehumanize people with whom they disagree.
9: Well, yeah, I mean, that's I talk about this in the book and I in, in the chapter on the media's role in it, um, the town hall at this point, which wasn't really so much a town hall as it was I mean, the only other way to describe it is a public lynching, and that might make some people flinch. But you know, if you haven't been on stage while you have an arena of people screaming at you and cursing at you, and even saying "burn her," which they did, and when media denied it, I posted four separate videos on which are still available on YouTube and Twitter showing this. um, Then maybe perhaps they can't judge if they haven't been in that position. Um, It was. uh, It was. it, It. It was a. I felt so bad for the families because there were a lot of people who were not even members of that community who ended up going to that event for some reason i guess I, they just they wanted to be a part of it but it made it a lot more difficult for actual grieving families and that's you when i when i went in there and i was sitting on that stage and i was looking at the, at their faces and the cameras zooming in on them uh, very exploitatively that that was that bothered me but uh, i that happened on a wednesday and I was told that I was going to go down there on a Tuesday. I was told that I was going to be on stage during the flight. And then I didn't realize that I was going to be even saying anything on stage until we had gotten down there on Wednesday, that Wednesday. And it was, it was a little crazy. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I wrote in the book. I'm like, I spent the entire flight down there in prayer because, you know, I'm a brawler and uh, that's, you know, how I've always been politically, but that's not what this situation calls for.
5: Right
9: And when I got there, I think I had been the comic that I'd ever been in my life. And uh, I introduced myself to Scott Israel because I, I wanted to take his temperature. I, I just sensed, I knew that CNN was, was going to pit me up against him, which they which they did. But one thing that people don't really realize is that they had a political rally before the town hall actually started on television. For about an hour and a half, they had politicians get up there and make dump speeches and Scott Israel got up there and started going off on me and other individuals. So that's one of the reasons why it was so amped up when the cameras started rolling because they had a rally, a political rally beforehand. And I told my husband, I said, you know, no matter what happens, you can't do anything. Cause I, he went with me. I said, if somebody throws a punch, you can't do anything. If somebody spits on me, you cannot do anything. Uh, and I told him, I said, you just, you need to restrain yourself. And that an was hard for him to watch, and he had to sit next to Ted Deutsch of all people. Um, but yeah, and on the stage, it was because uh, Jake Tapper had told me beforehand that he lost control of the room, and when we were sitting on the stage, it was there were there were there were people there who were just in so much pain. I don't even think they realized they were there, but the cameras did, and that's one of the things that that made me so angry. And the next morning, I had to leave that night right after the town hall and go to go to CPAC and. Uh, I maybe got like three hours of sleep, Uh, the VP was speaking that morning, and you know with Secret Service, you have to be down really early, and um, as I was on stage at CPAC, I saw the CNN cameras in the back, and that's just, it made me think of them zooming in on the faces of these crying families as they were reading statements or doing anything, and it just, I just thought how exploitative it was what they did at that town hall and how they really were doing everything they can to, to drive divide.
2: Well, right. And it's, and so, right. The, that sort of human suffering is just a means to political ends for them. I, I, that's how craven it is. And also stilted, right? Because uh, uh, one of the uh, families that uh, lost a daughter at Parkland was Andrew Pollack's family. We've talked to him on this show and he has very different views about what should be done in the wake of that massacre with respect to people's gun rights than some of the other families. And it's fine to have different views on the topic, but Andrew Pollack's pain and his views are given no quarter because they don't fit a prepackaged narrative uh, that CNN wants and CNN and other outlets want to want to promote. And and that seems to me uh, quite shameless as well.
9: No, it is, and and Andy has become a really good friends of a uh, really good friend of my family, his family, and Ryan Petty as well. And he told me later on, he, he and he and Ryan Petty did not go to that event. They said we did not go to that town hall. We did not want to be a part of it. And this was especially after, and, and folks may not remember, Andy was the dad who, when he got news of what had happened at Parkland, he just happened. He was in a Trump shirt. He happened to be in a Trump shirt, and he right. showed up to the school. And there was all of these pictures taken of him by the media of him wearing a Trump shirt in his truck. And he got a lot of hate. This was a dad who was waiting to find out if his daughter was alive. And he's already getting hated on in the media because he was wearing a Trump shirt. So he had no he had no interest in going to that town hall. He he told me later. Uh,
2: She is Dana Lash, host of the nationally syndicated The Dana Show, regular contributor to Fox, former spokeswoman for the NRA. The book Grace Canceled How Outrage Is Destroying Lives, Ending Debate and Endangering Democracy Dana, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book.
9: Thank you so much for having me.
0: seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, President Trump uh, did decide to meet with CDC officials today after the initial report was that he was not going to, for fear perhaps, of uh, one of the officials having been infected by coronavirus. Uh, Mike Pence on Thursday at 3 uh, M in Minnesota uh, said that the million coronavirus testing kits that the administration had promised to have and be distributing by the end of the week, they're not going to make that million number just take some time. But they are continuing to produce more of the testing kits and distribute them uh, as quickly as possible. So, you know, so all of this has... Uh, People, of course, on edge, both from a public health perspective as well as an economic one. Uh, There was a uh, post, though, that went around, uh, went viral, to borrow a word, early in the week about uh, coronavirus as we watch what's happening in other countries versus our own. And it was um, from a gentleman named Reggie Hamm uh, who uh, talked about uh, his adoption, he and his wife adopting a child from China 18 years ago. And uh, sort of wondering aloud, could the coronavirus, and the manifestation of it, and the impact of it be different in China than in the United States because of the very different cultures, the very different medical infrastructure, healthcare infrastructure, and the like? Certainly, the different responses are producing different results. We've talked a lot about comparing Taiwan or Singapore to China. But for more on this and to get uh, Reggie Ham's story, we're pleased to be joined by Reggie Ham, who is otherwise an award winning artist and songwriter, screenwriter. Playwright and author of Angels and Idols. Reggie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
10: Thank you for having me on.
2: You know, let's start with your story. You and your wife get on a plane 18 years ago to adopt your first daughter.
10: Yeah, well, and actually, uh, being the uh, absent minded father that I am, I actually uh, put it at 18 years ago, actually 17 years ago, 2003. So, right in the middle of SARS, Uh, about two days after we landed in Guangzhou, I started exhibiting all the symptoms of SARS. We would call the World Health, I mean, People were really scared about it much like they are now you know so i would call the world health organization or the cdc and ask if i should should i fly to this next city and they would no, no under no circumstances should you get on a plane and then of course i would just pack and get on the plane and, <laughs> and go because we had to get our daughter all that to say they kept telling me don't go to a hospital because if you go to a hospital they'll quarantine you with people who have sars if you don't have it you'll get it uh and then of course you know the first day we have our daughter we had to take her to the hospital so um very dramatic we actually had to take her twice and we knew both times. I mean, we were at a hospital full of people who had really probably never seen Americans. Uh, it was you know kind of in the interior, and uh, so we just sort of witnessed firsthand what that what that sort of utilitarian healthcare uh, system looked like.
2: And uh, and I mean, and, and SARS turned out to be uh, perhaps they know it at the time, but uh, you know, have a pr- pretty significant uh, lethality rate. It was harder to contract, but. It was much more uh, serious in terms of uh, its life-threatening quality than, say, coronaviruses, as far as we know, at this juncture. And and then so describe what uh, that uh, hospital healthcare situation was like as you reflect on that.
10: Well, yeah, I mean, there were a couple of days there when I I wasn't sure I was ever going to get out of China because it was, you know, it was very deadly. And, um, you know, thinking that do I have this? Do I not have it? You know, am I going to die here? I mean, there there was, there were some of those thoughts, but my daughter was really sick. um, So we had to take her to the hospital uh, for antibiotics. I mean, I guess that's the way it works. And so uh, we get to this hospital and it's just open air. There's a urine trough through the middle of the floor where they're squeegeeing, you know, whatever's on the floor there. Um, Went to this room where there were just lines of kids with scalp IVs. That's a very efficient way to get an IV into someone. So that's what they do. And then kind of went into this room that looked like a, a room full of bank tellers and women standing behind like a little plexiglass uh, barrier with a plastic table in front of them. And that's where you would put the kids or the baby, and they would just sort of examine them from there. Uh, very, I don't know, very uh, kind of cold and industrial. Um, not, not well, not even really industrial, just just sort of half-industrial um, you, you don't believe so,
2: you, are right. You don't believe your daughter would have survived if you hadn't gotten her out of that system.
10: Well, I'm hundred percent sure she wouldn't have mm-hmm. because, uh, a month after we got her home, she went into a grand, a grand mal seizure. And I just don't, I just, if, if she had been where she was living, I mean, maybe if she'd been in Hong Kong, if she'd gotten to a different, uh, city, she, she would have had a fighting chance, but in the city where she was, uh, they're just. They just didn't have the resources to, to deal with, you know, what her issue was. And as, as we, uh, and as, yeah, I mean, and,
2: and just uh, even people who have been to China more recently, and which is, I think, one of the reasons your your piece uh, got picked up in so many places, are saying, you know, what uh, what Reggie's describing here, not much has changed in Twine, in China in the intervening 17 years.
10: Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to, to where they are now. Not, you know, I was just writing about my experience uh, and then getting her home, and yes, let me tell you, when we got her home, there was a whole drama with that, with the healthcare system. I mean, we, she she was kicked off of our private plan. We we essentially went bankrupt, you know, paying medical bills. So yeah. don't 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 get me wrong. I'm mean, I'm I'm aware that there are are and have been cracks in the American system. I think they're fixable. I think that they're fixable without doing too many dramatic measures. But. The good news was we got great care, and I think that's the key. We got world-class care. My daughter's alive. We got a diagnosis. We figured, you know, we figured out what she had. She's got something called Angelman syndrome. She's missing a piece of a chromosome. I don't know that she would have ever gotten that diagnosis, you know, um, had she she been a, just a in an orphanage in China. In fact, we've even heard from some Chinese doctors that they didn't even believe Asian. People from uh, with from the Asian race could even get this disorder because they've seen so so few cases of it. But with the American healthcare system having cutting edge people and and state of the art people, uh, as expensive as it can be, as life altering it can be as it can be, I think you can get to the bottom of it. I think that's if I can say this. One of the things that really struck me when I was in China, laying in bed thinking I might not ever get out of here, was. If I can just get back to America, I think we can get to the bottom of this. Mm-hmm. And that, that was just sort of a visceral response. And I think that's that's the that's the thing we want to hang on to. You know, we want to hang on to really great care, how that's delivered and how it's paid for. You know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people have a lot of ideas on that. But um, I've been to a place where it was command and control, and the whole culture was oriented to. Serving the state as opposed to the state serving them. I mean, what we see right now with our response to the coronavirus is uh, obviously the health officials, the elected officials, are doing their best, trying to, you know, trying to get this uh, contained. But the under the undertone of all of it, the 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 underlying kind of philosophy is these people answer to us, right? And. And you see people criticizing the president, and that's kind of what America can do. You know, that's that that is the thing that they probably can't do too too much in China. If they don't like the response, hey, that's just the response. Um, we can go on talk shows and you know line up in front of cameras and and even post on social media, and we have the freedom to do that. And I think that's just a kind of a a difference in orientation. I think it's really important, and I think it's actually. Um,
2: healthy you know Uh, i think you're right and i think uh you know your piece sort of punctuates the national conversation we're having in this election year about what the future of the healthcare system should look like in america to deal with just exactly these sorts of exigencies that are often unpredictable like a viral outbreak reggie ham award-winning artist and songwriter screenwriter playwright author of angels and idols and i will uh tweet out uh at dan prof show his uh blog post that he was describing his story and the story of his daughter uh, glad that uh, everything was good with your family and appreciate your
10: time reggie thanks for joining us thanks for having me on
4: appreciate it
0: you're listening to the dan Croft show on the salem radio network
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof. Show. Catholic vote. Catholic vote is key in this uh, upcoming election, and particularly in swing states. And it's very closely contested. Barack Obama won the Catholic vote in 2008, and I believe Mitt Romney narrowly won it come 2012. Interesting some polling out of EWTN about where Catholics are uh, across a range of issues about their faith as well as their politics and also their habits, uh, particularly uh, mass attendance. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Matthew Bunsen. He's the executive editor and Washington bureau chief of EWTN News and the um, author of this piece about uh, the Catholic vote. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
13: Oh, very good to be with you. Uh,
2: So uh, this is a survey that was done by uh, EWTN uh, end of January, beginning of February, uh, 1,500-plus self-identified Catholics. But it requires uh, some textured analysis because there's a real uh, interesting distribution of views on faith as well as politics. One of the things I found most interesting, and, and I want to get your take on this and then other uh, insights that you believe are, are a key here, that half of those who describe themselves as serious about their faith, accepting most of the teachings of the Church, attending Mass, under the age of 45—so there is this younger generation of Catholics that are flocking to the Church— and taking their faith very seriously, which sort of cuts against the larger narrative in uh, the, the Beltway Press Corps, to use a phrase, that, uh, you know, the Catholic Church is, uh, is dying under the weight of the fallout from the sex abuse scandal.
13: Uh, that's right. And that, that's a really important point to make, too, so I appreciate that. Uh, this is the second of four polls uh, that we have commissioned. The first one was at the uh, early December, end of November last year, so we were a year out, basically, from the election. This one came out uh, just now ahead of the Super Tuesday. We're going to have a a third one as we move into convention season. And then the fourth one uh, will be just before the election. And we partnered with Real Clear Opinion Research, which is uh, Mm -hmm. one of the most respected polling organizations in the United States, uh, to do this because we really wanted to know where Catholics stand on politics and and how they're living their faith, which raises to your very point that uh, there are some surprises and some really interesting findings in this. And part of that is specific to that group of Catholics who say that they accept all the teachings of the Church. If you listen to the mainstream media, they generally say, well, they're old, white, and male. And what we found among the, that 18%, about one-fifth of all Catholics uh, who accept all the teachings of the Church, that uh, they're actually 45% or so under the age of 45, um, a third of them are under the age of 35, 52% uh, women. And 41 percent of them are Latinos. So this is uh, far from a sort of aging monolithic, uh, hyper-white group of people. This is a, a pretty remarkably diverse crowd.
2: And there's also, uh, arguably, uh, some schizophrenia here—cultural uh, schizophrenia. One could argue, although I could see, I could see the explanation of this, but I'll, I'll put that to you. Majority of Catholics believe current programming from the entertainment industry is mostly unhealthy for our culture fifty seven percent of Catholics believe there should be more faith friendly programming coming out of the entertainment industry, but on the flip side, less than half of Catholics say abortion euthanasia abortion uh, abortion or euthanasia are intrinsically evil so they, right. they, they so it 's like sort of uh, there 's a bit of ambivalence about the culture of life at least from conception to natural death, but at the same time they 're not keen on what 's coming out of hollywood and in, in the entertainment industry.
13: That's right. And, and in a way, the uh, the numbers are even worse than that, because uh, an overwhelming majority of all Catholics, about 72 percent, believe that, yes, certain acts are intrinsically evil, which from Catholic teaching means that they're always wrong, uh, regardless of uh, the intention or the circumstances, that type of thing. And yet, as you note, 47 uh, percent uh, seem comfortable uh, that abortion is not uh, an intrinsic evil, but 45 percent uh, uh, say that uh, euthanasia is intrinsically evil, and 41% say that uh, physician-assisted suicide is intrinsically evil. So this is, there's a real disconnect here, and and we can even make it worse by saying that 81% of all Catholics believe in hell and 78% believe in the devil, and yet uh, it does make one wonder why we have failed uh, so badly in helping all Catholics uh, to understand not just why something is intrinsically evil, but what exactly we consider to be intrinsically evil. Those numbers go up significantly higher, uh, though when we're talking about that 18% group, that group that uh, uh, considers uh, that they follow all the teachings of the Church. And yet, uh, even in that group, only 71% of, of devout Catholics believe that abortion is intrinsically evil. So we look at these polls as a kind of diagnostic tool. Uh, as well as just an interesting snapshot of where we are as as an American church, because this tells us uh, what we have not been doing particularly well for a very
2: long time. I want to pick up on this, too. There's some other questions that speak to this and just uh, sort of dig into this a little bit more. We'll do that uh, right after the break with Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief Chief of EWTN News. Matthew, uh, hold on. We'll be right back.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof., and this is The Dan Prof Show.
2: We're back with Matthew Bunsen, Executive Veteran, Washington Bureau Chief of EWTN News, Eternal, World, Tele, Eternal Word Television Network. For those of you not familiar with the acronym, talking about this, a survey on the attitudes of Catholics and Catholic voters uh, who will uh, be important in a lot of swing states, particularly Rust Belt states, a lot of uh, uh, you know working class Catholic union members that Trump pulled in places like Michigan and, and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Ohio to win in uh, November of 2016 will be important again in November of 2020 boy i just you know culture and faith uh it's it's um it's so interesting the impact of uh, the outside culture on people's faith and their will and, and maybe this just is uh an unwillingness to fight the fight you know catholics are a lot of catholics are taught and i'm speaking as one uh are uh, taught to um not proselytize you know, your faith is a private thing and so at this question Uh, About uh, whether about uh, gender identity, you know, the the latest Mm -hmm. uh, battlefront in the culture war uh, and the use of uh, bathrooms, changing rooms, locker rooms based on identity or based on biological sex. A majority of Catholics believe the facility should be based on biological sex at birth, not gender identity. But it's only 55 percent, whereas a third believe it should be based on gender identity. I mean, that that to me is uh, an indication that we're losing, not winning.
13: Uh, yeah, I would actually uh, absolutely agree with that. And what is notable about that is even when you poll uh, devout Catholics, to use that term, uh, the numbers actually are almost exactly the same across the board uh, as just regular Catholics. So we have definitely uh, given up a lot of ground on many of the cultural issues. Uh, when we look, for example, at the question of um, uh, whether or not uh, based on the religious beliefs, Christian owners of wedding-related business, businesses should have the right to not provide services for a same-sex wedding. Only 45% of all Catholics accept that. Uh, a full 40% say, no, they should be required. So it, it isn't just exclusive to things like transgender use based on the biological sex at birth. Uh, it's a host of different issues, and those numbers obviously get progressively worse uh, with those Catholics who either reject some of the teachings of the church or Catholics who say that, well, the the teachings of the church have only the slightest influence on my life.
2: So it's almost like, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's almost like you need to do, uh, I'm I'm not telling you what to do (laughs) to spend your money, but we, we need to do like, you need to focus group this because you have to have people explain it. We, We may be starting from premises like, uh, Um, do do you accept all the teachings of the Church? I say yes, but I have no idea actually what that means, because I really don't know what the Catechism is. It seems to me what you have here uh, is sentimental Catholicism. I have great affinity for the faith. I take it seriously. I attend church. I want a close relationship with God. I believe in the Golden Rule. I believe in the Ten Commandments. I believe in the Beatitudes. But I also have been swayed by cultural forces to accept things that run 180 degrees counter to Scripture.
13: Yes, it's, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think we also have, um, and this is something I that the, the U.S. bishops uh, have talked about regularly, that we have also lost command of the high ground of communications and language. And uh, we have allowed for a very long time uh, the supporters of an aggressive gender ideology, for example, to use a phrase that Pope Francis does, Uh, to set the terms of the debate and also to keep moving the goalposts. Uh, It wasn't that many years ago uh, that uh, the decision was made by the Supreme Court of the United States on Obergefell to open the floodgates for same-sex marriage. Here we are just a few years later uh, with the complete obliteration of what we even consider now to be even gender. Uh, So this is a relentless march, and uh, I think that in many different ways uh, as an institution. We have been outflanked uh, and, and, frankly, outgunned uh, in secular media.
2: What about, has
13: uh, advanced its agenda very aggressively. Uh,
2: what about uh, the problem of uh, fifth-column actors inside the Church? And I mean at the highest levels, people that will say, as Francis has said, that uh, marriage redefinition is an anthropological regression. But uh, that's not amplified by the media, and he's not so keen to talk about it very much, uh, particularly as compared to climate change or $15 minimum wages or immigration policy. I see that where I live in Chicago with uh, uh, Cardinal Supich as well, the same sort of thing. Yes, he's pro-life. Yes, he will say he's pro-life. Yes, he will talk about the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. That's his stated position, but it's a position he doesn't take up very often in terms of making the case. And so uh, when nobody's making the case or they're they're de-emphasizing those cases for uh, parochial and um, secular politics, uh, you can't be surprised when uh, people aren't connecting the dots.
13: Well, I think uh, that on what many consider to be the cultural issues of our time, uh, certainly in the United States and the West, uh, and this is almost across the board, Uh, Again, we have done a a pretty poor job in articulating uh, why we believe what we do, but also how all of this, uh, by embracing our vision uh, for the human person, the dignity of the human person, made in the image and likeness of God, that marriage is between a man and a woman, why these are good things uh, for the common good, why society at large benefits from this. And to be sure as well, the clergy sexual abuse crisis has uh, crippled much of our ability to speak uh, to culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there has, I think, also for a while been a certain hesitation, uh, a passive response uh, to many of the cultural changes that we've seen. Uh, As you say, too, I think there are and have been those in the Church uh, who have been pushing an agenda that is very contrary to the teachings of the Church, And uh, they often are amplified also in the secular media. Those who are calling for the embrace of same-sex marriage, uh, for the ordination of women, for an end to clerical celibacy, they are heard. And it does create a lot of confusion uh, for the faithful. And so we're fighting a multi-front war here, and it's going to require all of us uh, to understand what we're up against. And that's hopefully where a poll like this is useful for uh, identifying our weakest spots and where we need to do a lot more work, and in some ways where we're actually making progress.
2: Yeah, no, it certainly is. It certainly is that. It's fascinating. Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief of EWTN News, the uh, piece, Finding the Catholic Vote, which I'll uh, post on social media. Matthew Bunsen, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate
13: it. Uh, great to be with you. you have to come back anytime.
2: Great. Thank you. Take care.
13: Oh.
0: you'll know, this is The Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show and let's uh, end on a note of enlightenment going into the weekend. It's been another long week in the markets with the coronavirus politics. Uh, it's just so much uh, uh media generated hysteria across across the board really stories like this Australian newspaper prints extra pages because of toilet paper shortage <laughs> newspaper in, in Australia wants to help with the hashtag toilet paper crisis uh decided to print some extra pages in its editions you know boy the heroism of the journalist right <laughs> um all so so much media induced hysteria some good reporting but a lot of hysteria. There was one report of a, a local news station that had someone clear off the shelves in a supermarket of goods, so they could report the story that all these foodstuffs have been, you know, had been uh, there had been a run on the supermarket, and all these all this food had been taken. And so, you know, gather your food and shelter in place. Good grief! And uh, you know, anybody who has any profile is a. Uh, is asked about coronavirus and what's their thought on this and what's their reaction to that and how should we proceed when it comes to uh, sporting events and other public gatherings? Should you fly? Should you not fly? Well, uh, it is so ridiculous uh, that even soccer is making sense. And that's something for me to say as uh, as someone who believes that soccer is not a sport but a calisthenic. Jürgen Klopp, the manager of Liverpool FC... After a soccer match, was asked by a reporter uh, whether or not uh, there should even be these soccer matches because of coronavirus, and uh, here's what he had to say: Grand insight, common sense, winning the day at least in one quarter. On a
1: wider question about the coronavirus, are you worried as a team, as a club, about the spread of it or how it might
8: affect you? Look, what I don't like in life is that um, a very serious thing, a football manager. Opinion is important. I don't understand that. I really don't understand it. I could ask you. You are exactly in the same role than I am. So, and it's not is important what famous people what famous people it say. Itself? No, you have to. We have to speak about the things in the right manner, not people with no knowledge, like me, talking about something. People with knowledge should talk about it and should tell the people do this, do that, do this, and everything will be fine or not. So, and not football managers. I don't understand that. Politics, coronavirus. Why me? I wear a base cap and uh, I have a bad shave. I have, I'm concerned as much as you, maybe less, I'm not sure, I don't know exactly what your amount of is of being concerned, but um, my opinion is really not important. I'm, I live on down. this planet and I want the planet to be safe, healthy, I wish everybody the best, absolutely, but my opinion about Corona is not important. If somebody tells me we play football, we play football, because I think smarter people said we can play football. I will not make the decision.
2: The rare exhibition of humility by someone in the public eye. Cut, print, send it to Hollywood. Hear, hear, Jurgen Klopp, manager of Liverpool FC. Thank you for that moment of clarity. Have a great weekend. This is Dan Proff. <sighs>
0: From the fake news he's always got the real story this is the Dan Proft show
3: you are fake news.